I had you singing a little bit there. All right. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Like, What's up? Remember when we saw Penetration Angst? Yes. And I, and it was like, oh, we're going to show flashbacks from the person's life to show their backstory, but we won't reveal like the big moment until like the end. Yeah. And then, But they did the same thing in another movie, and I was trying to think what movie it was. They did it in Duck You Sucker. Yes. Yes, with, they did. With John. Sean, Sean. Yeah, John, Sean. Yeah, His name, his name is John. Uh, it's not Sean. No. Okay. That's just like the. Doesn't the, the... he like kind of? Because in the flashbacks, doesn't it reveal that like his maybe his friend was named Sean. Maybe, but I mean he but his friend like betrayed. The, yeah, and he had the they, they had like had, the love of and, the, and, them. and he had to shoot it out. Yes. Like the love triangle though didn't get much attention. Not that much. It didn't no. even seem like it was part of like anything. <laughs> no, it's not like you know in the flashback in Once Upon a Time in the West that really matters. Yeah, and then you know, uh, Penetration the... Angst uh, just stole it. <laughs> well, and it, it turned out you, to be to a big zero. Pen- to put Penetration Angst in the same breath as like Duck You Sucker or any Leone movie is pretty <laughs> stupid. Yeah, you're right. All right. So anyway, welcome back to the uh, the Wages of Cinema, and now we're going to talk about our New Year's list movies. And Jack goes first. Jack goes first. Jack I, goes first. All right. All right. About to do it. Yeah. Um. So I'm really excited to hear what movie you watched. Yeah, because un- well, the thing that's interesting is because unlike you, I'm getting the sense that you're going in chronological order. I, I'm only doing that because I don't want to be like, oh, what do I have to watch next? And then, like, you know, when you have to choose yeah. from a big list, then it becomes impossible to make a decision. Yeah. See, I'm, in a weird way, I'm kind of having your trouble where I'm kind of like, oh, so what do I watch next? And yeah. Part of the thing, though, that, I mean, I do have Netflix, so that helps a little bit. Um, the movie I wanted to watch actually just got taken off Netflix, though. So, But luckily, I did have one of the other movies on DVD. And that was fearless. There was no earthly reason why Max Klein survived the crash of Flight 202. You're alive. Why didn't you call me? I thought I was dead. But it left him with a heightened sense of reality. I think he thinks he's invulnerable. I've seen him with the Vietnam vets. You want to kill me, but you can't! And an extraordinary sense of life. All right. Yeah. So, for those of you who don't know, Fearless is a film from 1993 uh, starring, starring Jeff Bridges. and But also featuring John Turturro. There's a big cast here. Well, let's. I could list off all the names if you want right now. Nah, forget it. Keep going. Well, we'll get into it. Um, the movie starts off uh, in the aftermath of a, of a plane crash. Like, the opening shot, you're seeing Jeff Bridges sort of trying to... You know, he's carrying a baby and he's leading like a little boy through like a smoky cornfield and there's destruction and people, you know, crying and in pain and, you know, being, you know, tr- dying and not sure where they are. It's chaos. It's yeah. basically, if you've seen the show Lost, it's like the opening of Lost. And I'm guessing you haven't seen Lost. No. Okay. Well, it's akin to Lost. Um, only Jeff Bridges, like he, he brings this baby back to this mother and then he just walks away and, like, gets in a cab and goes to a hotel room. And he kind of just, like, looks in the mirror. You know, he's, like, left, he's basically left a, a, a plane crash scene. Yeah. You know, he's in, like, a complete daze. And he looks in the mirror and is like, you're not dead. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the man survived a plane crash. Yes, and... And it's all about the aftermath of that plane crash, because it's not about just him surviving. Yeah, it's, it's the change that comes over him. It's the change that comes over him, and also in relation to another one of the survivors, uh, played by Rosie Perez. And the thing with Rosie Perez's character in the film, I forget her character's name, unfortunately. I should have the page to the movie open, and I think I do. But Rosie Perez, she loses her son. Yeah, that's right. She has a two-year-old son. Her name is Carla, and Jeff Bridges plays Max Klein. Um, and what happens is is that through the movie, you know, Max Klein is really, he's messed up from what happened to him. But he he's trying to act like he's sort of, you know, what matters is that I'm alive and like, I can anything kill me now? You know, I might be invincible, you know, and early on he, he meets like up with an old friend and they go to the international house of pancakes. And he kind of just thinks like, you know what? Give me a bowl of strawberries. I want some strawberries. And, you know, he eats a strawberry and we find out that he was allergic to them as a kid. And I want to come back to this a little bit later. Cause I want to get your take on this by yeah. the way. Um, and it doesn't really do anything to him. And then he like, you know, he crosses a road of traffic and nobody hits him. Um, and so he kind of has this thought like, well, I'm, I'm, I've, I've survived a crash. I'm not dead. Am I, you know, am I still alive? What am I doing with myself? I'm kind of like repeating the same sort of cycle of this trauma. And I'm, I think I've dealt with it, but I really haven't. And the thing is, he also has a wife and kid. His wife is played by Isabella Rossellini. Um, and it's really, there is a story to the movie. I mean, there is a sort of progression of, like, Tom Hulse is also in it. He plays the lawyer, and he's trying to get um, Max Klein to figure out, okay, you have to say this in court. You, you know, there's a lot of money at stake. Yeah. You know, the airplane is, cul is culpable. They're responsible for what happened to you. Um, and so, but it's about, it's about it's his about, life after this traumatic event. And it's about, it's about him and, and Rosie Perez's character, Carla, like Rose, they both she, are dealing she, can, with things. she cannot come to terms with the loss of her son. Yeah. Her, her and, it's, it's really, you know, especially, you know, her son was a little baby and we also find out things later on in the movie that things aren't quite as we thought they were at first, but it's still, you know, it's still not like. Now, obviously it's not her fault, but you find out more things that make the situation much more tragic for her. And, yeah. you know, it's, uh, they're both dealing with grief in their own way and they're trying to come to some sort of way of trying to just figure it out. The movie is, it's really heavy. It's a it, heavy movie to take in, like more than I there, expected. It takes its, it takes its situations v seriously, and I really appreciate it for that. Yeah. Like it, but it's not melodramatic. No, it's not. I mean, there are little touches that get kind of really dramatic at times. Yeah. But not melodramatic, if that makes sense. But it's I mean, not, but it it's all yeah, right. Sorry. You you finish your thought. It has like the scene where, and I think it's even on the poster for the movie. Where Jeff Bridges, you know, he's sort of freaking out at one point. He goes on top of a roof and is sort of like standing right at the edge and has like his arms stretched out and is like, do I jump? No, I just kind of like standing up here. And, you know, it's, do you, you have to, and you kind of wonder, is he suicidal or what's going on in his head? Yeah. You can't figure him out. Yeah. It's 
kind it's dealing with heavy stuff but i wouldn't think of it as a very heavy movie like there are lots of movies that are about a tragedy which just weigh on you and this film this film is about a tragedy but it doesn't it's not it doesn't feel heavy i want to i want to come back to this film every once in a while because Mm, it doesn't follow a typical pattern it doesn't make you depressed it it doesn't go where you expect it to well i think a lot of that and the two you know two words for why I love this movie are Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Jeff Bridges is so... Who doesn't like Jeff Bridges? I think if you don't like Jeff Bridges, you should just go in a plane crash. Uh, I'm I'm just kidding. You're judging again, Jack. I am. Well, (laughs) Jeff Bridges is one of those actors, though, who, like, okay, he's been in some bad movies, but even when he was in a bad movie, he may have been... He was at least sort of trying. Yeah, you know, I mean, granted, he's you know he's been some crap. Unlike somebody else, Ben Kingsley. <laughs> yeah, Ben Kingsley. I mean, look, you know, again, you know, R.I.P.D. Uh, Seventh Son. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jeff Bridges wandered into some dark shores. He was in the Last Unicorn. Oh, was he? Yeah, he played uh, Prince Lear. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but you know, he he's the kind of actor who makes a good movie even better. And Fearless, it would have worked maybe with another actor, but something about Jeff Bridges, he's just so vulnerable in this movie. His performance really makes this character have a lot of dimension and depth. You can't really quite figure him out when, you know, his wife com- you know, confronts him more than once in the film. Is like, what's going on with you? We're your wife. You, you have a son. We need you. Like, what, what's going on with you? He's like, I, I just don't know. Maybe I can't really take this anymore i don't know what's going on with me and you really buy it because jeff bridges is you know just keeping himself open there's a lot of him actually smiling in the yeah he has a lot of confidence even in his vulnerability yeah well he you know it kind of makes him a changed person like i almost wonder if the movie would have been better or not better if it had shown him a little bit before the crash like was he a different person like we don't really know that we just see him on the plane Sort of figuring out, like, something's wrong. You know, the plane's going to... Well, I think we can more or less assume that Jeff Bridges is a normal person in that film, like like us, who would have reacted yeah. to things in a certain way. And let's let's get back to, like, the nature of, of his behavior in this. You said he's basically messed up by this. Yeah. Now, what... Now, what... Uh... The thing is, you can't really say, Pat, like, oh, he's suicidal. Oh, he's... Has, like... You know, you might say he's depressed, but what kind of depression is that? I mean, he has a certain, like, um, it's almost, to to sort of quote Herzog in a weird way, it's almost like after this plane crash, he sees, like, the ecstatic truth of life in a weird way. It's like, hey, you know what? I'm I'm still alive somehow. I sort of see things differently than the other people do. Which yeah. is why he sort of bonds with Rosie Perez in that way. Yeah. And, he, um, and to get back to that, I think the true nature of his change is he's, he's a normal person. Like, yeah. before this crash, like, uh, he, he'd react to a plane crash. He think, you know, you'd think in a situation like a plane crash, you, you could probably guess how you would react. Yeah. Uh, you know, how scared you'd be and that thing. But I think he's, he becomes like, he's the one person probably in a million who gets into this plane crash and he expects to be afraid and he's anticipating yeah. this. But as he, but as the crash is happening, like the plane's going down 
and everybody is so tense waiting for that fall. And he's the, the one person who realizes that in this one moment, he is not afraid. No, and he also, he he's the guy that realizes, you know, I'm sitting next to you, but that kid has no one there next to him. I'm going to go up and sit next to this kid. Yeah, so he's, he's like, lucid. Yeah, he's not he's not paralyzed in fear or tense. The, he is he's aware and he, there's no fear and he just walks through that aisle and goes to sit down at that other at that other seat and he has this sort of spiritual awakening. And I think the film was about the the distance, the gulf mm. that exists between him and everybody else. Yeah, and ex- after or, or, that, except maybe Rosie Perez, but then even in that case, I think he's sort of trying to figure out like what she's going through, and you know, trying to relate to that, which is very difficult because, you know, again, he, you know, he sort of lost maybe a part of himself, or maybe he lost something in his head. Rosie Perez lost her kid. Mm. I know, would she, argue that he didn't lose anything; that he no. he gained a lot from that. And it's the but fact that he's gained so it's, much it's from amb- it that separates but, him from everybody. But it's ambig- to me, I, I read it a little more ambiguous. Like there's that scene where Isabella Rossellini goes up to his uh, office and he sees that he's dr- like almost as if like in a moment, like the shining where he, she sees like <laughs> nothing but the same thing over and over again. He's sketching he's the, same drawn the same or like in close encounters, of the third kind with the yeah. devil's tower. Yeah. <laughs> he's drawn the same picture over and over again. And it's like, this giant explosion or this giant like abyss and or it's like a tunnel maybe yeah and it's like okay maybe was he did he see death possibly like and come back from it i read it that i didn't read it that clearly and that's what i liked about the movie is that it leaves open a little bit of interpretation it certainly doesn't spoon feed you no, it it's doesn't. not preaching anything. That, how you feel about uh, Jeff Bridges in that movie is is really up to you. Yeah, and Jeff, I think a part of that is in the writing, but a lot of that's also in the performance. And that, the fact that Jeff Bridges, he plays a guy who you can't not like Jeff Bridges. He's like, yes, as you he's mentioned, Americana. <laughs> you know, he's 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 one of those actors who you know, I just I can't go on how much I like the guy because you know he he pops up in a movie. And there's something kind of wholesome about his face. There's something kind of just genial about him. He has a dark side. He can be funny, like in The Big Lebowski. He can be a, a little more serious. Um, can, in this, there's a... He could be a supervillain in Iron Man. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah I, I forgot about Iron Man. <laughs> Tony Stark built this in a cave! With a bunch of scraps! Yeah. Like, he can do it all. And in this movie, you know, he's basically... It almost had a little bit of the like the dimension of like a Bergman film for me. Like huh. this really got to some deep parts. Um, and again, you know, a top shelf cast. You know, we mentioned Jeff Bridges, Isabel Rossellini, John Turturro is sort of like the grief counselor. Yeah. And I liked his character too. Yeah. He was someone who comes in and like he has like this grief meeting, and he really is good at like. His character is good at addressing everybody's concerns, but being very straightforward about it. Yeah. And like even sort of shutting up like people who are acting like dicks in the meeting. And um, and again, I mentioned Tom Hulse, and that was a nice surprise because I don't see him in a lot of movies. Um, uh, I mean, other than Amadeus and Parenthood. Yeah. I can't oh, you know who's in this movie? Who? Benicio del Toro. Oh, does he play? Uh, he plays Rosie Perez's husband. Yeah. Yeah, and he's great in the movie. He has he doesn't have a big character, but he's interesting. And uh, and I liked Rosie Perez too. Um, you know, I mean her. 
you know, her voice can sometimes be a little on the, yeah. But, <laughs> but, you know, still a good presence in the movie. Um, now, here's the question I wanted to ask you about. I want to get your take on this. Because the one thing in the movie that, again, I, I highly recommend this movie. I really liked it a lot. The thing with the strawberries. Okay. What was your take on that? Because, all right, so this is, I guess, kind of a spoiler. If you want to hear this, uh, skip ahead in the recording. Uh, you could skip ahead starting now. So, all right, so we see Jeff Bridges, you know, he, in the movie after this crash, he suddenly gets the taste for strawberries again. And it kind of almost surprises him. Like, I can eat a strawberry and it doesn't, I'm not having an allergic reaction like, you know, like I used to. And he does that through the movie. It comes to the end, and he, and I guess this is after he has, like, a car crash where he tries to, like, yeah. you know, shock Rosie Perez out of, like, her, you know, being hysterical. And, but then he gets into, like, an allergic fit again, and it's like he's sort of maybe going to die in this moment. Did, did the movie kind of prepare for that? It seemed like it suddenly is like I don't. He, he he sort of he he oh now he's overcome the strawberry thing oh wait now he hasn't huh. I thought it might have been kind of a flaw that's something I I wondered about why does but, it why is it suddenly at that moment is it because but after he, the car crash it changes him again that no, all of a sudden he's allergic to it no that doesn't make much sense yeah so why uh, would he not be allergic to it but again I might sound like one of those people that maybe the strawberries are a metaphor for something. Like, that maybe, in part, you know, he conquered death, and he's kind of conquering it again. You know, like, almost that line in Alexander, like, conquer your fear, and I promise you will conquer death. Yes. He's kind of gone the Alexander the Great route. Well, it is, uh, it is a way what happens in this film. I mean, it's called Fearless for a reason. Yeah. And I basically, and in the end, throughout the film, I would argue that his erratic behavior is a result of his lack of fear. Yeah. I mean, he does these things which are, which most people would shudder at, like yeah. uh, standing on the edge of that building or driving up to 80 miles per hour down the highway or having, or crashing his own car. And he, I, he's, tr I think he's more or less testing himself to see, like. Sure. To, I, I, to, I get all that. I think that works great. I guess I but, was just, but we're getting back to the strawberries. Yeah, I don't think I felt like that was sort of like a device just to sort of bring about one last thing at the end where it's like, oh no, he's about to die, and then. Well, I don't know the rules of allergic reaction. Yeah. I don't know if it's like if you're really allergic to something, or whether you can like just kind of eat it and it's okay, like maybe once or twice, or if like sometimes you have a major reaction to something. Maybe I don't know, uh, but I. It felt like one of those things that happened more like because the sort of the plot sort of demanded that there needs to be an ending that's really powerful and dramatic, and it is like you know again the actors sell it, um, and so I I don't know if it's a flaw. It just seems like one of those strange things that maybe it's because again I'm as I'm a screenwriter I kind of notice certain things like if a writer has like a device of a certain sort and. But again, this is one you could even say it's a nitpick among a movie that has so much to say about death and about living. Yeah. Well, it's certainly. I mean, I'm certainly confused about it too. This is a question. This is like one of those after the movie questions. Well, I, uh, I actually thought of it while I was watching the movie. So. Well, all right. Well, 
it's different for you then. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. No, no, no. But you, no, no, you do I'll get have wrapped to wa- up in that moment. Yeah, sure. I'll have to watch the movie again because, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure. Because it's if if it had maybe been just once that he ate the strawberries and he didn't have a reaction, and then at the end he eats it and he does. That'd be one thing. But he eats strawberries multiple times in the movie. Oh, he does? Yeah. Like, he goes to the mall and he gets strawberries. Um, At one point, there's, like, I don't know, they're at, like, another place and he picks out a strawberry from, like, a food basket or something. So, it's a kind of running thing in the movie. It's like a writer's device. I don't know. Uh, Um, Well, that is a good question. Yeah. It's one of those things that just kind of stuck out to me as being there for a good... I felt like it was there for a metaphor for something, and I can't put my finger on what it is. Hmm. And then it's like... Um, yeah, and when you watch Well, but then again, the thing is, if you have to ask what it's a metaphor for, then it's not a metaphor. No. <laughs> I, we're not going to dismiss this just because... Uh, just because it's a good movie. No, no, no. I, I, I won't do that. There's there's so much the movie offers. The thing, like, one thing, one little thing that the movie uh, that I was sort of impressed by, like, so when he's right, when he's going to, pre- when he's preparing to do, like, the car crash, you know, because Roddy Perez is freaking out. Yeah. And he can't really get her to calm down. And, you know, she just really can't let go. And he's trying to figure out what to do. And it suddenly strikes him. Ah. And you don't know what he's going to do. And then you start to hear music. And I was like, wait a minute. This is where the streets have no name. But yes. you too. Damn it. Why is you why is Yeah. Why is you too in this movie? I don't, I don't know if I like this. But the movie like made me like that song again. Yeah. And it got stuck in my and like the movie actually just has the opening. You know, it's like <laughs> you hear the opening as they're do getting the <laughs> you car. You sound like you're playing a banjo. You know, you too. Yeah. Well, but they crashed into the brick wall before Bono starts singing. I kind of like oh, that. Oh, thank like, God. Yeah. <laughs> I want to run. I want to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my bad Bono. I want to run. Yeah. Yeah. My spine. <laughs> my pancreas. Um... But no, this my is, sperm. Yeah, but this is an excellent movie. And something else to mention is that the the director was uh, Peter Weir, and if you don't know what he is, uh, well, he's a <laughs> he, man. He's a lizard. <laughs> he, uh, you know, it's awfully hard for it's awfully hard for lizards to get work in Hollywood. But he's really broken the the scale barrier. <laughs> Is he animal, mineral, or vegetable? <laughs> okay. I don't know what that man is, yeah. but he can sure direct. <laughs> so Peter Weir. Okay, Peter he's a Weir, man. Yes, he's he's a man from Australia. Um, you might also know him for the movie Witness with Harrison Ford. Yeah. Um, he also did the Truman Show, which okay. I think is probably his best film. Um, he did a, a little r- too much of a backlash against the Truman Show. I think Was it still there? holds up. I think nowadays people think, oh, it's a show about a like a reality show with. Ju- it's a movie with, about a reality show. It's a movie about reality shows starring it's Jim much, Carrey. It's much different than that. It's yeah, people I think dismiss it too too easily. The, the biggest criticism you can make of the Truman Show, and it's not invalid, is that it's basically a half hour Twilight Zone episode because it was. Oh, I love movies like that. 
Yeah, well, it's I mean, the haunting that. is a half is a half hour Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Well, but I, I don't mean that facetiously. I think there was an episode of the Twilight Zone that was kind of like the concept of the Truman Show. I don't know if it was exactly that, but it was about there a guy was the who... one where is everybody, where it's just one guy in a town. But I don't think there was one that was like, oh, this... no, 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 yeah, no, no. I, um, the great thing about the Truman Show is that it really posits the what if of a person who has been led to believe that his whole life is this thing well, but it's, it's actually a tv show well it's like dark city and like the matrix it's it's reality is not what it is it's the allegory no. of the cave yes but the, but what i like in the truman show maybe even more than the matrix in a way is that it's much more based in reality yeah you know it's much more based around like just you know the big dream in the truman show is i want to go to fiji yeah, yeah, it's different than in The Matrix where it's like, are you the one? Are you the Oracle? Or, you know, Mr. Andrews? You know, there's a lot of it's, stuff it, in that. Yeah, it's a fanciful interpretation of reality television, but it's something you can relate to. Yes. Having dreams and being stuck in a life that is that you feel like has been mm-hmm. designed for you. Yeah, and I think it, uh, the interesting thing is that, you know, The Truman Show came out before there was a lot of reality TV. Like, you had the real world. But since the Truman but, I mean, Show, I, I think that was there's not... been a lot more reality TV, but the difference is is that well, reality... the people know that the cameras are there. Reality TV has has taken over the History Channel. You realize that? I believe so. Yeah, that's I mean, I haven't seen... What, what, is there a reality show on the History Channel? There are... <sighs> I'm sorry. You look like your, your head's about... You look like when I was talking right, about... I'm Chappie. not going to complain about television. Okay, but, we shouldn't. But to, <laughs> the point is, Peter Weir, very talented filmmaker, and uh, Fearless, I think, is one of his better films. Yeah. For sure. Oh, he also did Master and Commander. Oh, I like that. Yeah, with Russell Crowe. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you... Re- yeah, that that's- movie's awesome. Oh, it's fabulous. He's on the sea with all these men on the sea. <laughs> That is exactly... Oh, and he's playing the violin. That's marvelous. <laughs> yes, that is how you react. To that's how you say that your love for Master and Commander. Master and Commander is a good movie. Uh, yes. Um, but yeah, of, so Fearless, you know, again, it's fabulous. Yeah, Fearless is one of these movies that I believe kind of went under the radar when it came out. Like, it maybe was positioned to maybe try to be an awards movie, and it just didn't because 1993 was a pretty good year for movies so mm. it, it probably just in a better list is kind of atypical i'd say fearless is a it, it's a tough movie for some viewers because some people who want you know a pretty basic movie you know you're not going to quite get that with this um it probably work good on a double bill too with uh the movie flight which is kind of like, oh. which is kind of like fearless, but from like Except the pilot's, from pilot's point perspective, of view. and nobody yeah. dies. <laughs> well, a few people died. Eh, who cares? But not acceptable as, losses. Yeah, they don't really say how many people died in Fearless, do they? Uh, we can assume a big chunk of them. There was a chunk, yeah. Like we don't know. Lots how many... of people were missing big chunks. Yeah. Um. Okay, so Fearless... I apologize to you if you've died in a plane crash yes. for that joke. So, I'm glad you recommended me this movie, because it's, it's, I've actually had this movie in my collection for a long time, and I just... I don't know, I think you need to be in a kind of mood to watch the movie. It's not... I don't know if you'd call it a feel-good movie. No, it's, it's not, not feel that. bad. 
you know. It's it, not I, depressing. No, I, it's not depressing. <laughs> I would say it is kind of heavy. It's. I'd say it's profound. That's a good word. Not, you know, it's... Profound is a great it, word. It's, no, a better word I'd say is challenging. Yeah. It's a challenging film, and if you're willing to let yourself be challenged and to sit and think for a while, then Fearless is a great movie for that. Yeah, or if you just love... And you can figure out what the hell's up with the strawberries. Yes. Or if you love uh, Jeff Bridges, that's reason enough. Right, so that's three reasons. Yes. Okay, now let's move on to your movie. My turn! Yes! It's your movie, Fabulous! Now you just sound like a gay nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Rope! I watched Rope. Ah, Rope. Alright. And here's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I think it was in the last podcast... Uh, I talked about the movie Compulsion. You talked about Compulsion, which is about uh, uh, what are their names? Leopold and Loeb. Leopold and, and Rope Loeb. And Rope is also not as closely as Compulsion, but it's also loosely based on But I got that vibe Leopold instantly. Like, oh, yeah. Before I even went on IMDb to look at the trivia, I thought, yeah, this looks a lot like Leopold and Loeb. Any story where you have two men and they're basically like, Nietzschean wannabe super boys. Yes. You know, they're, they're the Leopold and Loeb case. Yeah, and you get that in films like uh, In Cold Blood. Yeah. Uh, and any any sort of spree killing uh, sort of thing, you have to go back to that. Yeah, now the thing with Rope... Um, now, first off, I was just curious. Um, before coming to this, how many Hitchcocks have you seen? Uh, I think chunk? I'm like 50-50 on Hitchcock. I've seen oh, okay. Dial M for Murder, mm-hmm. Psycho, of course... Uh, I've seen the birds. I've seen North by Northwest. Okay. Uh, Shadow of a Doubt. No, I haven't seen that in its entirety. Okay. Strangers on a Train. No. Hmm. Uh, Um, Vertigo. Yes, I have seen Vertigo. I would hope so. That's five. Oh, okay. Uh, I I saw like a a really early Hitchcock, like Thirty Nine Steps. Well, you saw a movie. We saw a movie. Do you remember the number seventeen? Yeah. Yeah, we watched that. That's not very good. Eh, I remember it. <laughs> it was okay. I remember it fondly for what I for what little I remember. Yeah. So if you want to be technical, I think I've seen six Hitchcock films aside from this one now. Okay. Alright. Uh we still have a ways to go, but Rope I think is is one of the essentials. But first tell the people what's about. Alright, Rope is about uh two young gentlemen who decided to commit a murder for th- for thrills. Because they believe they're superior to mm-hmm. most other people. And uh, they basically set up a party where they invite the dead man's parents and his uh, fiance and mm-hmm. his best friend and their professor to come to this party where they've stashed his body inside of a chest. Mm-hmm. And the film is basically a what is, in essence, a real time rendering of this party. It's meant to be real time. The movie is shot to look like it's one continuous take yes now of course during very time, long shots yeah now the thing is of course um just to give a little background when it comes to filmmaking at least in that period because now like if you watch a movie like birdman that's probably the closest that comes to a style like rope where birdman is very much like trying to be a, a long continuous shot even though that takes place over a week right um but in now, Hitchcock's for, day you could never actually do that no, because, because cameras ev- only could you could only shoot for maybe 10 minutes at a time yes and it's then the physically impossible out. to shoot for more than that with one camera at the time so, so what Hitchcock comes up with are a series of 
Hidden somewhat cuts. Su- subtle cuts. Uh, some of which are not so subtle. Some of which are just real yeah, cuts. Yeah, you can kind of tell. You could tell what he's there. about to cut, and I was able to count. And I think yeah. I really got. There are ten cuts in this film. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Right, and I could tell when it was because you know they, the camera yeah, would a character would kind of go, like a, w- a, a coat would go in front of the camera. A character would walk in front of the camera, and the screen would essentially turn black because they're just looking at their back. Yeah, and then like there would be a voiceover to cut it to cover it. Like some they probably added it in post. Like they had to add it add it in post. That would be yeah. insane. Uh, another reason they had to do this was because I noticed the background changes outside the window. It changes from late evening to dusk. They do have to change the lighting. They had to change the lighting and the background. Like, it's a matte painting of a city. Mm-hmm. And it's like, at first it's a matte painting in late afternoon, and then it's a city at yeah. at sunset. And yeah. you have to change that. You can't... You the, yeah. Rope was originally, I think... It a was play. a stage play. Yeah. And the thing that's cool with Rope, and... I don't know if you feel this way because now you've seen Rope and you've seen Dial M for Murder. Those are two Hitchcock films, were which are both based on plays. I feel like Rope is may- maybe even more cinematic, like cinematically done than Dial M for Murder in a way. Well, it, it uses the tools of cinema to try to enliven what's meant for the stage. Whereas Dial M for Murder, it is a good movie. I feel like it. You can kind of tell at times, like, okay, this is where the the stage scene is happening, with the, certain, with the exception of the murder scene. There are certain, like, when there are times when films seem stagey, mm. and there are certainly parts. There are certainly moments in Dialogue for Murder where that happens. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a detective describing what's going on outside, yeah. uh, and it's not altogether necessary. But I, aside from that, I, it never really seemed stagey to me. And like a lot of times, I just forgot that they that most of the most of the most of the uh, action had taken place in one room. Mm. I mean, rarely do they leave that uh, that apartment. Yeah. But I mean, Rope is certainly. You think it, that's more stagey? I do because oh, I mean, you're very because I, and I think those long takes contribute to it because you're always following these people and you're very much aware that you're in one place. I am. A, I was aware of it in a way. I kind of liked that though. I liked and the it's whole not aspect bad. of following them because you feel like you're kind of caught in this space. You like you can't get away from these guys who are creating this situation that you know it could it's gonna it could blow up in their faces and. You know, eventually it does. Right. But it's you're watching this sort of inevitability that I feel like that was sort of Hitchcock's goal, and it's basically an experiment. Yes. Uh, and for what it is, it's a very intriguing experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to draw. I want to talk a little bit about the connections between the, the murder and sex. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, the very. Now there is a kind of shot I think over the they have like the opening credits and it's over like the outside of the apartment and then you hear someone screaming and then it cuts. It's hard to tell uh, how do, how does a man who's being strangled scream? Yeah. <laughs> strangled screams. That sounds like a short story collection. All right. I'll um, write it down with robot cop. <laughs> but yeah, the 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 image of him of the guy being choked you think there's a sexual component to that? Not necessarily that. I mean, they kill the man, they stuff him in a chest, and then they immediately light up a cigarette. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting point. And they're just, and they said, uh, <laughs> I think they say basically, how was it for you? <laughs> yeah. Well, various, but here's but here's the deeper connection. Like, I've been reading a lot of, I've read a lot of books about people who 
uh, try to spice up their sex lives. <laughs> and one of the things they do is have sex in public places hmm. or uh, or at jobs, places where you're much more likely to get caught. And they seek out situations like that because the thrill enhances the pleasure of having sex. Interesting. And this is essentially what their crime is all about. They're trying to enhance the thrill of killing somebody by inviting all these people, acquaintances it and family like, members. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, though, is that, you know, you, you, and if you want to make the sexual description take it even further, you know, it feels like the one character, and I'm going to, I'm blanking on his name, because the one guy is Farley Granger, and he's the one who's sort of tr- following along with the other actor's plan. And yeah. Did you write down his name, possibly? No, I missed yeah. it. Yeah. But... I feel like there's a little bit of a dom sub thing. It is, yeah. He is definitely the submissive one. <laughs> yeah, Farley Granger is the one who's like he's really he seems a little nervous about it, even though. But it's clear he he hatched this plan with him, but he is clearly taking the lead from him. And yeah. that was also in. I also noticed that in Compulsion, and I'm sure that must have been what was I, in the. Case. I wouldn't say that's so much sexual as it is. Maybe just how it happens. It's just sometimes in, in a crime. group of people. Yeah, one person is usually taking the lead. And uh, one, and I don't know if there's another person who's really panicky, but you know this, now, this is just how it happens. Now here's sometimes. a question: Did you maybe read any? Did you read a homosexual subtext into it? Oh, uh, I think that was that was rather subtle. I mean, any homosexual subtext comes from the sexual nature of what they're doing. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, to, it's two men, yeah. and there's this sort of sexual, like there's this coded sexual situation happening. So I mean, yeah. When there's just two men, it's automatically you have to assume homosexuality. Yeah, we it's. I really think there was some daring though for on Hitchcock's part because at that time, you know, you could not get away with that much in films. You know, like I was reading a, a section in uh, Charlie Chaplin's memoir about this movie he made called Monsieur Verdu, which is about you know he plays like a lady killer. Um, you know, acquitted. Blue, blue... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, well, he's a bluebeard, and you know, he, and he writes about how much like the I don't know if it was the Hayes office or I think it was also called the Breen office. They were like the Catholic League. Ugh. They objected to like so much stuff in the script that wasn't even there, and he had to explain line for line why he was doing this or that. Like the fact that Hitchcock had you know a guy smoking a cigarette after putting away a dead body and being like, ah, oh, that felt good. But I mean, that's very subtle. And it is subtle, se- but you smoking know that, is not sexual. But at that time, though, it's you have to think that somebody must have been like, "Hey, wait a second. <laughs> I mean, but it's it's part of a it's a it's a meme of cinema, where a meme. It's Do you know what that. What I mean is like there are certain things that you expect from, mm. like it's like in Scream. Oh, okay. When it's like. Never say I'll be right back. That's a death sentence. And it's like, hey, you want a beer? Yeah, I'll be right back. It's yeah. and like you know when a jump scare is coming mm. because you know how people set it up and we're so trained and conditioned. It's part of like uh, it's part of like Ebert's little movie glossary. Oh yeah, there are things we expect subconsciously in movies because we've been trained over the rest over our lives and there are all these stereotypes and cliches that filmmakers use. Mm. Okay, now so that, yeah. w- so when you. And people expect that when you see a couple after sex, somebody's smoking a cigarette. Mm. And we've been trained by the movies to expect that. So when somebody lights up a cigarette in a movie 
after after uh, killing somebody uh, and saying, oh, was it good for you? Mm-hmm. But we automatically assume that. Oh, actually, all right, so two things I should point out, because I just looked up uh, a little bit of trivia. Now, first off, the other actor is named John Dahl. Okay. Now, the other thing is apparently the film was actually banned in a number of American cities because of the implied homosexuality. Yeah, uh, but that's... Uh... No, I'm just, I'm just saying that yeah. that's apparently something I forgot. Um, a couple other interesting things to bring up. Um, the uh, apparently, you know, because of the filming, the way that they shot it, you know, every, you know, everyone tried to avoid any mistakes because obviously, if you mess up a shot like five minutes in, you've wasted all that film. Yeah. Um, and apparently, at one point, the camera dolly ran over and broke uh, the cameraman's foot. <laughs> Yeah, but to keep filming, he was gagged and dragged away. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a really prepared uh, guy on set. Yeah, um, but uh, but I don't know. So what did you? Uh, but what did you think of the movie in general? There's a really, uh, uh, I think the movie has a lot to say about stuff that like there are a lot in the, the conversations that they have where they talk about it's the a- sort of ideas of like what is power and especially you know this was made in 1948 so this is not so soon after you know world war ii and i think they even bring up the nazis at one point someone mentions is hitler yeah someone mentions hitler (laughs) someone gets compared to hitler Uh, (laughs) yeah he was like the first one so they pre so they uh they prefigured the internet yes uh you're such a Nazi. That's like such a common. Thing. <laughs> but Jimmy Stewart's having this conversation about um, having the right to murder and yes. things like that, which you wouldn't expect from Jimmy Stewart, which is which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and, this is also Jimmy Stewart's first movie with the uh, Hitchcock, by yeah. the way. And here's here's a little note I said. Uh, I was thinking of Cinema Sins, where, mm. uh, <laughs> and I was thinking, and during that whole uh, Jimmy Stewart lecture about killing, I said Jimmy Stewart accidentally inspires the Purge several days <laughs> later. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not the fault yeah. of this movie. It's no, the fault no, no, of the no, Purge. But, <laughs> but these ki- these would be the kind of killers that would take part in the Purge. Yeah, they would be like. Those, you know, I didn't see the Purge too, and I didn't like the first Purge, but like the ki- the sort of killer that like comes up to the, you see mostly through the doorway in the Purge. He's like, hmm, we're gonna come in there, we're gonna kill you all. It's like <laughs> that's like a descendant of like the people in this who you know. Yeah. Uh. Here's a favorite. Here's a quote of mine that I loved. When I was a little girl, I used to l- read quite a bit. Is that well, we all used to do strange things when we were children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of good lines in this movie. For a movie that's about, like, you know, life and death. Again, you know, it's funny how we both sort of watched movies about, you know, what it means to die. Yeah. And what it means to feel like you're alive. Like, in a way, it's like Jeff Bridges doesn't die and it sort of changes his perspective on you know living yeah these people kill and it sort of changes their perspective just in a matter of a couple of hours of or they're not really changed they're sort of set in their ways but <laughs> but you see their you see their points of view in the scope of like the other characters there yeah. and in a way i could appreciate their point of view during this whole thing it's like man yeah, you just killed yeah. the guy and what you're doing is really twisted but i mean 
inviting their family over and having yeah. a, a dinner on top of the on top of what is essentially their coffin is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was what like again another thing that why it was it, it was a challenging film for the time is that usually when you had you know killers in a the movie they were depicted as nasty guys that you know need to be stomped out and this is more like no let's get to understand these people yeah i mean they're douchebags but... yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah well at, at nicest they're they're douchebags you know or not not no i was gonna say at worst they're douchebags nicest they're like trying to pretend to be yeah so it's, yeah. it's basically what i mean to say I mean, one of them is just a psychopath, mm. which is, you know, and he precipitates this whole thing. But I liked the movie, and I'd watch it again, and even the, and even though, you know, the cuts are a little obvious, it was still a lot of fun seeing these long takes. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart is, uh, is great in the movie, too, especially yeah. at the end. But even before that, like, he has a terrific ending scene that, yeah. you know, is a kind of a showstopper. Um, so, yeah, that, um, actually it's also interesting to point out that there apparently, there are a couple of conventional edits in the movie. Yeah. Um. There are like two. Yeah, when Janet, like, when a character arrives at the party and one of them says, that's a lie. Yeah. And, uh, meant to hide the truth. That's a call back to one of our things. We did a short film at one point and... Yeah. <laughs> no one else will get it. It's okay. No, it's an in joke. But uh but yeah, I felt like it was important that you see this movie just in the sense of you know, you may end up seeing more Hitchcock films. You may find them better than Rope. You may you may not, but it's one of those kind of essential Hitchcocks. Right. Well, Rope is an intriguing experiment and I'm glad I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, it, it certainly makes you think about cuts, how you never even notice them in films a lot of times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, you don't think of a jump cut or or a fade or just like just panning over to look at somebody. Yeah. And this film makes you conscious, at least of the mechanics of filmmaking. Yeah, I think Hitchcock, you know, he was really trying to, you know, again, you know, at that time you had films that were just conventionally shot. You know, Hitch, even Hitchcock would shoot things pretty standardly, and he, you know, he he tried throughout his career to have little experiments. He liked really long takes. He mm -hmm. liked involving the audience in the action as much as possible. I think that he once said in an interview that ideally one day, instead of watching a movie, you could just like beam like manipulation into like a person's brain. <laughs> I guess like. Almost like the Riddler in Batman Forever or something. Hitchcock <laughs> uh, accidentally inspires ways. Batman Forever. <laughs> uh, that's kind of a guilty pleasure for me. Very guilty. Yeah, it's like take me away and throw away the key guilty. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take one more little break and then we'll come back and talk about our main topic this week. In another moment, you might have been strangling each other instead of a chicken. Mr. Goodell, really? Oh, but a man's honor was at stake. And personally, I think a chicken is as good a reason for murder as a blonde, a mattress full of dollar bills, or any of the customary unimaginative reasons. Well, now, you don't really approve of murder, Rupert, if I may. You may, and I do. Think of the problems it would solve. Unemployment, poverty, 
standing in line for theater tickets? I must say I've had a perfectly dreadful time getting tickets for that new musical. What's it called? You know. The something with what's-her-name? <laughs> My dear Miss Atwater, careful application of the trigger finger and a pair of seats in the first row is yours for the shooting. And have you had any difficulty in getting into our velvet rope restaurant? Frightful! A very simple matter. A flick of the knife, madame. And if you'll kindly step this way, oh, no, a step over the head waiter's body. Thank you. And here's your table. 